Man City lose here whilst they're not competing. Did get yellow carded very early on in the match for being a bit too eager coming out of her goal and taking out, I think it was Leah Carlton. But, uh... <laughs> Subscribe to the OTB Koyig pod on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Now we're turning to rugby at 9.16 this morning. I'm delighted to say Matt Williams is with us. Matt, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, Joe. Very good, mate. Um, we should we should start by talking about Australia. Like, I, I, um, <clears throat> from talking to you over the last number of weeks and the, the level of injury difficulties that the team has suffered, uh, was the weekend more in keeping with what we expected to happen? Was there almost an understanding about why South Africa were able to beat them the second time around? Um, or am I making South excuses? Africa, yeah, yeah. I think it's, uh, look, South Africa should have should have played a lot better in Adelaide, and they didn't. Uh, and South Africa played with incredible physicality in Sydney. I think the very big disappointment um, at the opening of the new stadium, so that was the new Sydney football stadium, the first test match, and the night before there'd been a game of rugby league, but this was really the big international opening of the stadium, uh, built on the same spot as the old stadium, the Sydney Cricket Ground, that precinct. I know many of your listeners would have visited there. Uh, so it was a huge night in Sydney, and the Wallabies didn't fire a shot. Physically, they were very poor. Their kicking game was poor. They made huge mistakes. They were ill-disciplined, uh, and they got a couple more injuries. So th- there's no excuses there for that. They, they had played very, very poorly. Look, it was a poor match. 27 penalties absolutely played into the Springboks' hands. Heaps of stoppages, lots of penalties for them to maul and scrummage and bore the socks off everyone. It was a very, very disappointing uh, spectacle uh, rather than just, just a disappointing result for the Wallabies. Springboks thoroughly deserved their victory. They were far, far superior. But, gee, it was a poor game of rugby. One of the other things that um, we've been talking about since last week was the relatively funny exchange between the um, New Zealand coaching ticket and Michael Checker when the New Zealand coaching ticket were complaining about uh, not rolling away and slowing down of balls and Michael Checker's laughing going, well, you guys would know all about it, wouldn't you? And it did It did just start a conversation that we had the other day where it's like, um, it seems unless you're putting pressure on the referees at all times as an international coach, you're not actually doing a very important part of your job. You're not warning everybody about what the opposition is doing. And it's kind of grim enough because it feels a little bit like, you know, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. I'm like, well, are we really? Is that is that the situation we're in at the game where the international head coach's job now involves a 10-minute warning to the referee to make sure that the opposition's cheating is caught? Well, it, it's always done that, Jim. I, I think this is something... Oh, there's been a number of things this week where I think, again, just shows what the public don't know about international sport, that, is, that has been the case since the game turned professional in, in 1996. You always get 10, 15 minutes, half an hour with a referee before a game, and you state your case. You say, this is what we're going to do, and look, this is what we're seeing the opposition doing, are you going to stop them? That has always been the case. And so that's when Rassi Erasmus came out last on the, on the lines tour and uh, made public his, or, or someone made public his discussions with the referees. Everyone was up in arms. And Nigel Owen said it, and I said, well, all the coaches said, that happens every week. So, no, I, I don't believe that that's like some sort of new um, in, uh, in, intervention in the game. What is a problem is that when you get within 10 metres of the try line, the defensive team just does anything to stop you scoring. And New Zealand have been in the past 
masters at that for many, many years, going back to Richie McCaw's time. They would cheat their absolute living socks off 10 metres from the try line to stop you scoring a try. And that's what Michael's saying. Like, you know, if New Zealand is complaining to the referee about about the, the dark arts at the breakdown, I mean, you know, really? <laughs> really? I mean, that's what Czech saying. They're the best at it in the world. And they have been for many years. When Richie McCaw was playing, he was a genius. And, and I say that with great admiration for him. He was an incredible footballer. But, you know, that, that's what they've always done. The, the problem we face in rugby, as I, said, I think I said on the show last week, is that the, you can't blame the coaches. The coaches are like uh, uh, tax uh, accountants. They find loopholes in the law. That's their job. That's what they're paid to do. Their, their job is to win on Saturday. That's it. Full stop. End of story. Nothing past that. So anything they can get away with, they will. And I've been there, and that's your, that's your gig, right? So let's not blame them. The, the problem sits with the lawmakers at, at World Rugby who have just done nothing for years and years, have seen how the coaches are exploiting these loopholes in the system, watching the refereeing you know, 27 penalties at the Sydney Football Stadium. There was a, an interview um, uh, done, I, I just can't remember which were the, the media organisations, and then people walking out saying they're never going back. Rugby people to their to their half uh, saying they're never going back to a test match. It's just, it's just not entertaining anymore. It's, it's, it's very boring, and the game, you know, can't keep doing this. Now, I, I keep saying that, but the game does keep doing it, and the, the uh, coaches keep finding more ways to waste time to keep the ball out of play and to um, play a game that suits their talents. Now, you've got to give the Kiwis credit. They played a really entertaining game. They're trying to play up, upbeat rugby, but then again, they're trying to stop the opposition with illegalities, as are all teams. And the second part of that is you've got some teams, especially the Springboks that are on show at the moment, and I put England in that same category, that are playing a very, very negative game plan that exploits the, all the loopholes in the laws where the ball is in play for very short periods of time, and it is absolutely boring. It wasn't just that, Matt, as well, in the game in Sydney at the weekend. Like You had brawls breaking out, you had, uh, you know... Ill feeling, to say the least, between between the two teams as well. Look, very interested listening to Craig Ray, the South African rugby journalist, on, on Monday Night Rugby last night with Will, and he referenced the the Wallaby gamesmanship, and and you know he I think he referenced the Nick White incident in the first test, and is that something that that some teams might target Australia with that they might think right if this is a team that's going to get riled up, we're gonna we're gonna absolutely do our best to rile them up. Well, I, I actually thought that was the most entertaining part of the game, to be really honest with you. <laughs> so it's great. Kieran, you're next to, used to sit next to the great Kieran Fitzgerald, captain of Ireland in the 80s when they, when they won the, the Five Nations that was there. And I remember him watching a fight in the great South African test of the 1970s. He looked at me and said, oh, they were the days, Matt. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, Look, no one wants to see fights, but that's what happens. Everyone gets frustrated. And look, no, nothing really came of it. And they're not fights, they're just pushing and shoving mm-hmm. and people yelling at each other. It's not, not, like, not like Willie John McBride and the famous 99 call. That, that doesn't happen anymore because you throw a punch and you're gone. And that's the way it should be. There's no two ways about that. Um, you know, I agree with you, the Wallabies can get well. Look, uh, uh, there was uh, Swain, the uh, Wallaby second rower, had his hair pulled um, in the, against England. And he turned around and uh, head-butted the guy who pulled his hair. I mean, that's just ridiculous. You can't do that. He got sent off and cost his team the series. Um, look, th- there is no doubt the Springboks have always been physical and they bring this physicality uh, to every game they come to. And they, they were hurt after playing 
poorly in Adelaide. And and again, you know, I've got to I've got to say that South Africans blame everyone else when they lose and then take all the praise when they win. They played poorly in Adelaide. They missed kicks at goal. And Australia played really well. Australia laid on four very good tries. They're, they're, that's it. End of story. Uh, Faf de Klerk was unjustly sin-bin. Nick White, as I wrote in the Irish Times last week, got the Greg Luganis Award for the worst dive in history. He should never have done it. It was embarrassing. It, it was embarrassing for the gold jersey, embarrassing for all Australian rugby. Now, that, that's no one in rugby condones diving. And the referee on the field should have told him to get up and stop being, being as I said in the paper, a pork chop, which Nigel Owens would have done and did do. Uh, unfortunately, the TMO and the referee got it horribly wrong. Factor clerk was Sinbin, and it was an appalling uh, blight on, on rugby that that occurred. But that doesn't take away from the fact that Box played poorly in Adelaide and they played great in Sydney and they brought their physicality, which is what they do. They, their their um, plan is really simple. They pick six forwards on their bench. They have a huge pack on the field and they are going to physically smash you up. They're going to be as close to offside as humanly possible in defence and the physicality they bring is huge at scrum time and every line out they will maul and they will kick to bring the physicality to the back three. Highly effective, uh, very smart and very hard to stop and exceptionally boring, all, all under the one sun. Look, uh, look, the Wallabies are, to come back to the original question, the Wallabies are, are very weak. Australian rugby is at, a, at the weakest I've seen it since I was a little boy, since the 70s when they were, were really, really in trouble. And that is also linked to their financial troubles. In the 70s, they were bankrupt. Um, you, you might remember the Wallabies used to wear a very famous Adidas jersey through a long period of that. That was because they got to France, I think it was in 73, and they didn't have any gear. They literally didn't have a jersey or shorts. And the French who were sponsored by Adidas gave it to them. They organised them to have shirts and shorts and socks. That's the truth of that. how the Adidas started. Australian rugby financially is in the same position roughly now. The next World Cup in four years, they'll get out of it. Then they've got the Women's World Cup two years after that. So by 2030, Australian rugby will be back financially in the black. But between now and then, they're, they're really on the ropes. There's not a lot of talent coming through, especially at 9 and 10. And there's talent in certain areas, but they've also got a, a drain of talent going to France and, uh, and Japan in particular from Australia because the money is so good. And they have a rule that if you go, unless you've played, I think it's 80 tests. They might have brought it down a bit now. It might be 60 tests. I just don't quote me on the 80. Unless you played 80 tests, it was, used to be called the Matt Kiddo rule because he played 80 tests, we can bring you back in. So they, they do apply for exemptions every now and then in case they've got injuries. But there's a lot of good players playing overseas that, that aren't will never play for the Wallabies again. And they're not the force they were uh, at the turn of the century. And I can't see them coming back to that anytime soon. Can I ask you about something totally different here? There's um, various pieces about Malachi Fakatoa, who has obviously signed for Munster. He's tearing it up in pre-season, looks absolutely sensational. And fingers crossed he's going to be injury-free for the next while. But um, I think it's Derek Foley has written today that he's going to be playing against Ireland in the World Cup for Tonga. And it's just, um, I think Charles Pietau is going to be in that team. Israel Falau is, is eligible to play in that team as well. So their back line is going to be sensational and interesting. And it always really felt like... Um, you know, there was something not quite right about taking teenagers from one country, plunking them in your Europe in your school system, and then uh, not allowing them play for their home country. It, it feels like it's a bit rich from the Irish, who are you know have a lot of New Zealanders playing for them, but the New Zealanders who came here were grown men. You know, now we have started to pick up some 
Hawaiian props in, in uh, their teenage years as well. And it just makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, that whole, you're 14, 15, we take you away from home, we play you for our country. It's great, I think, basically, is what I'm trying to say, that these, these lads will play for the country of their birth and the country that they're probably most happy playing for. I, I'm just interested in your take on that whole kind of the geopolitical part of that. It's exploitation, pure and simple. Dan Leo uh, is head of a players association representing the Pacifica players, which is, is basically Tonga, Samoa, uh, Fiji, uh, and, and various islands across across the South Pacific. There is no doubt Australia, New Zealand, France, and to a lesser degree, um, uh, uh, England, exploit players. New Zealanders in particular, that they're, they're basically schools turning up, they're offering scholarships, taking kids away from their families at 14, 13, 15, to, so they got the opportunity to win their first 15 comp and brag in their local area. It, it, it's an appalling um, system. Now, the, the opposition on that says they're providing uh, some young players with an education they wouldn't get in their home country. That I, You have to agree that is possibly the case. The, the schooling they go to, the education system they go to are very, very good and they get a, an opportunity for a for work in academia and, and post rugby life that they may not get in their own country. So there's we've got to, we've got to put the the the, um, the the ways up in there for, for both sides of the argument. My problem is those guys never get they they go and play for Australia or they play for New Zealand and, and a little bit more for France. It's happening more and more in France uh, where their centre deformations, their academies are bringing in young players from Pacifica, qualifying them as French players. And something called the GIF, which which basically means you are educated in the French system through a French academy. And once you've you've graduated from a French academy, you're regarded as a French player. And so there's loopholes in that system. And lots of top 14 clubs are not putting money into their local area, into their local clubs. They're putting money into this by bringing players from overseas. And it, it, it is wrong on every sense. Uh, there's no two ways about it. The, the problem, again, sits with world rugby where... Um, people that oppose this are not getting supported because Australia and New Zealand and, and France and to a lesser degree England um, don't support the changes. Now, they have moved things a little bit where they're saying that once you, if you, if you are, it'd be like being a, an Irish player and you go to New Zealand and you might play a test for New Zealand, but after that you can go back for Ireland. Now, you can't because Ireland is a top-tier nation. But if it's one of the, the listed nations, especially in the South Pacific, or Chile or, or, or one of the, the lesser uh, tier, the tier two or tier three countries, if you play the tests for or, or A games or sevens for one of the tier one countries, you can go back and play for those other, other countries. And it's only right. Like they've got, they've got so much talent that they're not allowed to pick. Or on the other side, they've got talent that's playing over in Europe. And, that in, and we know, I've seen the contracts. They get offered two contracts. Here's a contract if you don't play for Tonga or Samoa, and it's it's sixty thousand or seventy thousand less than this contract. That if you do play for Tonga or Samoa, so in other words, you don't. You say I'm not available to play, and we'll pay a hundred grand, seventy grand, sixty grand more to play for our club. There's all these anomalies going in the system that are absolutely against the smaller countries, and they're being propagated by the bigger countries. And you only have to look through. Um, where the players were born in the, this, this test series this year. Look through the countries of where the players were born. Now, rugby's got a long history of players travelling between 
countries, and, and that's something we should um, encourage and endorse. But in, that was meant for amateur days when people migrated or you were studying. That was the big one. People were studying overseas as in their early 20s. The, they were in the amateur days you could play for that country. That, that loophole, like we just spoke about the laws, has been exploited so that now Australia, I think it was had 12 and New Zealand had 14 players born overseas, usually in the Pacifica region. The Argentinians uh, are playing basically with the entire squad. I think there's one player that was born in Italy. Um, the rest of them they were all born in Argentina. You, gotta, you know, that, that, that is the case. Japan is another one that's benefiting hugely from that system with so many players born overseas. It's, it's uh, against the smaller countries and pro the bigger countries, or not necessarily bigger, but financially with the clout. So it's good to see Fekatoa playing for Tonga against Ireland in the World Cup, and, and that is a move that hopefully will, you know, just have conversations start about it more often, so that the pressure ramps up on World Rugby to say, okay, we actually need to address this at at um, at base level. Maybe we could help by investing some money in the schools' rugby systems to keep players and to give them the opportunity to have that schooling. You know, there's definitely a way around that that isn't just like. Um, Oh, we're a colonial power who have better education, so therefore we can take your young people and um, and give them a better life than they would have. Like that doesn't really seem to be helping the situation, really. No, it's not true. But it's even more than that. But what World Rugby can do is empower the national teams of Fiji, Samoa, and Tonga to have an even crack at it, so they can play uh, at a, at a very high level. So that if you're a Tongan or a Samoan. Uh, even even the grandchild of Tongans and Samoans, like I'm, I'm a grandchild of Irish grandparents, so I got an affiliation with Ireland. The grand the grandchildren of Tongans and Samoans and, and Fijians, if they believe their national team's got a fair crack at winning and it's got these tours and plays in decent competitions like Australia and New Zealand do, then you they'll declare for them. But they're not going to declare for Fiji and Samoa if they know they're only going to play once every four years in a serious competition. That's really where the core of it is now. Look, the, the national bodies of those of those countries, as um, Dan Leo's wonderful um, documentary, I just can't remember the name of the documentary he put out last year, showed there is corruption at the elite end of the game as well. There is serious questions to be asked about the governance of the game at the top end in those countries. So players, there's a whole uh, uh, environment of why the players aren't going there. It's not just... The education, it's not just taking kids out at 13 and 14, is that those kids don't see their national team as giving them a shot to play international rugby. Whereas they say, well, if I can play for the Wallabies or I can play for New Zealand, yeah. I, I got a shot at it. So, so there's a whole raft of things World Rugby's doing, but, but they're not doing much of anything. That's the problem. They're not addressing it at any, at re- with real substance at any level. The documentary is called Oceans Apart. That's it, Oceans Apart. Great documentary. I'd encourage every sports person, especially rugby people, to watch it. It, it was very controversial, raised a lot of really difficult issues for rugby to face, and unfortunately, like a lot of these great works, it was praised at the time spoken about, and the politicians just wait till the, the pressure dies down and just carry on as normal. Um, at the All Blacks were, were far more impressive last weekend than the previous weekend of course but uh, I don't know if you managed to see it kind of doing the rounds on social media and you can read whatever you want into this but the, the video of, of Joe Schmidt and, and Jason Ryan up in, the, up in the box after the game and obviously slow motion replays 
maybe make these things out to be more than they were, but uh, certainly a, a cold sort of uh, reaction to uh, from from Jason Ryan when, when Schmidt tried to give him a, a little fist bump and a tap on the shoulder as well after the match. Um, obviously, uh, Ryan has his loyalty to, to Scott Robertson as well, uh, so there's something there's something there perhaps, but. Uh, Joe Schmidt's impact on this New Zealand attack is is quite clearly already evident to see. I think we've got to wait till next week. I'll probably lose the way they go. <laughs> like, how can you pick New Zealand rugby? Yeah, no consistency. Like, like they played magnificently at uh, Ellis Park. They were absolutely sensational at Ellis Park um, and beat South Africa out the gate. They then come home and were appalling. <laughs> In, in Christchurch in the first test, and then we're magnificent again. We're fantastic against Ireland at Eden Park. We're horrible in the next two tests. They're really up and down at the moment. Um, look, whether Joe and Jason have built a relationship, they don't know each other, they're only just going out. Um, I, I, don't, I can't comment. You know, sometimes you, you see things that are just not true. Anyone reads stuff into it. They were sitting there bef- as the game was ending uh, with Ian Foster, laying back laughing, having a giggle because they knew they'd won. Probably saying, I wonder what the media are going to say tonight because they played really fantastic rugby. They're, they're, um, they were far more accurate than they have been. But then, look, again, we, we can't read anything into this, really, apart from they are capable of playing magnificent rugby because since November last year, New Zealand have been just inconsi- have shown an inconsistency that we have never seen, I have never seen from a New Zealand team in my lifetime, and no one has. The New Zealand media must be saying, well, we usually only have to be horrible human beings for a week or two each year. Now we've got to do it consistently because we don't know what they're going to do. But in Hamilton, they were sensational. They outplayed um, Argentina. They were more physical. They were more accurate. They scored some absolutely spectacular tries, like 100-metre jobs, and they were far, far superior than they were the week before uh, when they were the exact opposite, the absolute mirror image of what they were uh, in Hamilton. So let's see. They're going to Melbourne for a Bledisloe Cup uh, against the Wallabies that they should win and win very well. Again, as I said, Australian rugby, if Australian rugby gets out of the Bledisloe Cup with one win, I think they've done exceptionally well. I think they've got one game at Eden Park, so they're certainly not going to win that. So you've got to say right now, in a very even competition, like the New Zealand are on 10, all three other countries are on nine, so there's one point between Argentina at the bottom and, and New Zealand at the top. And that's all on tries. So you can see New Zealand 14 tries let five in, South Africa 10 tries let nine in, the Wallabies 11 tries let 15 in, and the Argentinian side 10 tries let 16 in. So it's all about who defends and stops the opposition scoring tries. And right now New Zealand are doing that better than anyone. So they've got a great staff, great players, and they should go on to win the championship. Mark, good stuff. We leave it there. Thanks a million. Pleasure now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.